1625. This is the business of sports. Business of sports. From the Economic Times. After much controversy and mixed emotions, the FIFA World Cup 2022 has finally kicked off in Qatar. When Qatar won the right to host this World Cup, it made a promise. We will make sure that this is a milestone in the history of the Middle East and a milestone for FIFA. On this week's episode, we speak to Neil Shah, former MLS director for fan development and author of the book, Awakening the Blue Tigers, India's quest for football's holy grail. Everyone's asking, when is football going to make it in India? Or if I'm abroad, they say it's just a cricket country. It's never going to happen for football. And the question always comes up every four years. When is India, a country of one point blah, 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 billion people, going to be able to get 11 players who can qualify for a FIFA World Cup? And how far along has the ISL come on its pathway to improve the state of Indian football? I was at the Derby match in Kolkata. I was in the stadium at Salt Lake watching Mohan Bagan East Bengal and it's 62,000 people. The ISL is it's still young in its ninth season, but it has brought a lot of professionalism and strategy and you know, a certain level of packaging into Indian football, which I feel had been missing for a long time. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. It's good to be on. Really excited to get into this conversation with you because uh, football is obviously one of my big passions as well. And the future of Indian and football and what it holds uh, is obviously going to be a very fascinating topic for a lot of people to listen to as well. You know, best way to start, we're in the middle of India's foremost league of football, the ISL. And uh, I actually did go for a game live the other day, an FC Goa game. And I was struck by just how marked the improvements had been in the standard of football from when I started watching the first season of the ISL, especially. And obviously it comes with all its teething problems, etc. But I noticed that it seemed like a lot of the Indian players were almost in awe of some of the big starry foreign players that came in at that time. And you'd see it in like over-eager tackles, uh, right. trying to pass quickly to the, to the guy next to them. And watching FC Goa, it was quite amazing just to see the quality of passing, the calmness now in some of the Indian players, players like Brandon Fernandez. And so I wanted to ask you, from that first season of ISL to seeing it now, do you think that, it's done what it's set out to do in terms of really improving that standard of Indian football? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's done what it's set out to do, but I, said, I would say that the stream is moving in the right direction. And I completely agree with you. You know, with the year one in 2014, I was living in Delhi at the time, going to a lot of Delhi Dynamos matches, watching a very overpriced Del Piero kind of hanging out. And, um, you know, stands were not that filled at JLN Stadium and, it just didn't feel as high profile as kind of it was set out to be. Um, and even on the pitch was left a lot to be desired. And, and now, you know, I've, I was watching the FC go a match on TV. I just recently, you know, I was at the Derby match in Kolkata. I was in the stadium at Salt Lake watching Mohan Bagan East Bengal and with 62,000 people. And what I can say is this, is that the ISL is 
it's 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 still young. It's in its ninth season. It's still you know it's it's still finding its feet, but it has brought a lot of professionalism and strategy and 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 you know a certain level of packaging into Indian football, which I feel had been missing for a long time. There's a lot of great stories that we can talk about later um, in in I League, and there still are some great stories in the I League. But I feel like ISL has brought um, something that we desperately needed into into um, Indian football. And with that level of investment comes responsibility and comes a need to professionalize. And I feel like FC Goa is a great example of a club, among many others, that are looking at a long-term strategy, hiring the right people, giving them time to understand the sport and the league and just how it works better, and then building something along with certain individuals from abroad in a way that actually is exciting and entertaining for the fan like us who who come and enjoy the sport and enjoy the league. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy and, and pleasant. I mean, I'm, I'm at peace with where it's at right now. I do feel like there's a lot more uh, growth opportunities, of course, but at nine years in, I think they've shifted things to make it uh, a much better product for us fans. Cautiously optimistic, I think, is the, yeah, is the, yeah. is the feeling we should have right now. I mean, exactly. as you mentioned, 2014 is nothing in terms of a league, in terms of the duration of a league. So it's just the very beginning. So I think all we could have hoped for at this point is to see steady progress. And I think that's been a good sign so far. And now we have the World Cup upon us as well. You know, one of the most exciting, if not the biggest tournament in world sport. But of course, every time that excitement comes along and we're watching the World Cup, there's always this little bit of a void that we don't have our own nation, our own country, our own footballers to root for. So it ends up being supporting Brazil or Argentina or a lot of people following England now because of the Premier League. It's a great starting point for our conversation because you've got a book now and thank you so much for sending over a couple of those chapters. It was such a great read. It's called Awakening the Blue Tigers. India's Quest for Football's Holy Grail. And of course, Mm. the two chapters that you sent, well, one of them was qualifying for the World Cup and what will it take for India to make the cut? So not an easy question to answer and something that a lot of people have been trying to get into. If there was a simple yes or no answer, does India have what it takes to make the cut? Yes, I I wouldn't have moved from the US where I was comfortably situated in the U.S. football or soccer industry for many years. I wouldn't have moved to India 13 years ago if I didn't believe that we had the raw materials and, you know, to, to actually qualify for a FIFA World Cup in both the men's and women's side. And you've really questioned that filling of that void so proactively in your book because a lot of us sit back and as fans, we lament the state of Indian football and we're like, oh, we'll never make it for a World Cup. We just don't have the resources. Cricket is too powerful. But you've gone and laid out an agenda, a strategy, a way forward and put together a plan for Indian football. What was it that motivated you to even get into that in the first place? Yeah, you know, and, and I was thinking about this as, as we were just chatting about the ISL and kind of where it's at. You know, I I was fortunate to work at Major League Soccer and start my career there in around 2002. The league was just six years old. And, you know, even at that time, the league was being questioned by 
all people in the sports industry saying that the credibility of the league, the authenticity of the league, and rightfully so. I mean, I'm not sure if you were watching way back then, but there was, you know, backwards counting clock from 90 minutes, TV timeouts. Um, there was no draws. There was these you know, penalty shootouts from half pitch that yeah. were going on. And with this attempt to make it more American, this sport that's kind of done well all over the world. And it was, uh, and even the players were just not at the level that, um, Kind of people would hope to see at uh, at a professional league in America, as well as the stadiums were just not up to the standard. There's a lot of American football lines in the stadium, hundred thousand seats, five thousand people there. So, and at that time, a lot of people were questioning what is the viability of this sport in America? What is the chance? In, what is actually happening? And because I grew up playing, um, I'll call it football always, even if it's I'm talking about US, but I grew up playing football. Um, in, in America, I played through all the youth systems. I traveled all around the country and eventually to Europe to play in my club teams. I was part of university structures. And then I worked at Major League Soccer. I was kind of on the inside. And I got a sense of while America wasn't a, a football country at that time, there was a lot of really positive parts of America's association with the game all over the country. And you take the Latin American community, you take the people, the youth participation women's game we had won a world cup by that time and i really wanted to i was sharing that story with everyone around america and anytime i was in europe i'd always say that we might not be there yet but we are going to get there if we do a couple of things right mls will get there u.s soccer will get there and we have i mean mls i was just back in the u.s i went to a la galaxy match i've been to lafc matches this last time and it's unbelievable the passion the the, the, the players the crowd the whole business model of the league is really coming onto its own and becoming a, a thriving league where clubs are going for hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of sales and, and their valuations is even more than that. Now, fast forward, let's look at India. I've been, I came to India in 2009 because I believed in the future of football in this country. And I've been working in all levels of football for the last 13 years. And of course, every time I'm in a bar or a coffee shop or a conference or a uh, Diwali party in Delhi with my in-laws. Everyone's asking, when is football going to make it in India? Or if I'm abroad, they say, it's just a cricket country. It's never going to happen for football. And the same thing, I just tell that story is that there are so many incredible um, you know, elements to the relationship that India has with this sport, starting all the way back till 1889 when Mohan Bagan was founded and the Durand Cup, which was the third oldest league in the world or tournament in the world. And to all the passion you see in Kolkata or Goa or Kerala or the Northeast, but then now the urbanization of the Indian football fan, people like yourself and others who are just crazy about the sport. Um, so first off, I wanted to tell that story in this book. I wanted to yeah. make sure that the general sports lover in India understands that, and even the football supporter in India understands our history, our past and present, uh, really, of the relationship we have. That was one. But the second part of it is that the question always comes up every four years. When is India, a country of one point blah, 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 billion people, going to be able to get 11 players who can qualify for a FIFA World Cup? And this, the other part of the book was to actually talk about, well, it's not so simple just to say, okay, let's just get 11 players on the pitch and qualify. It's about building an ecosystem that is sustainable, that is something that all stakeholders can come, get behind and actually. Um, you know, collaborate and, and, and make it 
you know, build it over a long period of time with realistic expectations and goals tied in. And that's what the U.S. has done. And I had to, I got to see that firsthand and be a part of that. So the second, the other part of the book is just laying that out and letting people know that we all have a role to play in India qualifying for World Cup, some more than others. But what does that look like and where should we focus our energies on? Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting to make the parallels with, like you say, with the MLS. And in your book, uh, again, what's very interesting is the way you've laid it all out is a step-by-step action plan. And for each suggestion that you have, there is a case study of somewhere that it's worked in the world. But if we look at what the AIF is trying to do and the objectives they're laying out, we do see that there is also a plan for them in terms of wanting to make sure that India is going to be successful in the football um, universe, as it were. And so why don't we go through a few of the things in your book? I know one of the initial things that you're saying is, and it's, it sounds easy on paper, but it's mm-hmm. setting a long-term and clear vision. Yeah, I mean, we've had strategic plans come in and go in Indian football, but the reality is there were, I feel like, a little bit more of kind of exercises that we, we needed to do. Um, See, the, the, the challenges and the opportunity is creating a plan that all stakeholders um, get behind. And, and I'm going to say some words that people don't want to always hear when it comes to building something that they want to see happen overnight. But it would take a lot of leadership and sacrifice and humility and patience and accountability to, 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 to do this. And what I mean by that is that right now we're all working in silos in Indian football. You have FSDL, they have their own, and the people who run the group that runs the ISL, they have their own kind of business objectives for that league and, and, and development objectives. You have the AIFF, then you have all these state associations, which some have their own agenda, of course, of ways they want to monetize the sport, ways they want to d- develop the sport. Then you have agencies that are involved, and then you have media houses, and you have FIFA and AFC with their objectives, and so on and so forth. What I mean by um, a strategic plan that everyone gets behind is that we have to really identify those key areas that's going to help this sport thrive and, and put our energy on those in the short term and then over time start focusing on the other areas down the line. So, if you, so getting the foundation right. And that's difficult because right now people have invested in Indian football. If you're starting from scratch, it would actually be easier in a way. But you're actually trying to kind of scale back and you'll have to scale back in certain things to do that. So the U.S. did that. They actually said in, 19, I think it was 1998, they created Project 2010. They said, okay, how are we going to be competitive um, in a FIFA World Cup by 2010? And when they looked at the whole system with Carlos Quiroz and the ex-president um, of, of U.S. soccer, Sunil Gulati, they said one of the biggest things we need is a residential academy in, in, they put it in Florida for the best 17 year old, 15, 16, 17 year old. Now, what did that do? That took those players out of the system and put them into a different system. Then they created something called the U.S. Development Academy. This was eventually 200 clubs that were now outside of U.S. youth soccer and inside of U.S. soccer with certain criteria in terms of the coaching qualifications, the matches they play, the amount of money that people are spending to be a part of it, and so on and so forth. This was disrupting the existing system. You, the existing system had players coming out of university, getting then getting drafted into MLS. But they switched. They they had to disrupt a lot of it, and the stakeholders had to buy into it because they realized that for us to 
reach one of our goals is to be competitive in, in FIFA World Cups from then on, we needed to make some kind of more drastic decisions. Now in India, we're not even there yet to be talking about all this. So one of the things I'll say is that restructuring the ISL, which I know would be hard to say right now, of course, given that it's nine seasons, but having the investment be more focused on youth academies, on building facilities, on looking at um, coaching education programs. So while the entertainment aspect is important, we also could be looking at doing different things with the investment that's being put in year on year. Now, again, I, I get it. If I was sitting in the shoes of a JSW or others, I'd be like, no way. I've invested so much up yeah. at the top. I want to win the championship year, every year. And I get that. But for the betterment of the future of the sport, we might have to do something like that. Or um, investing funds in a few states instead of all of the states equally at first. So saying, let's build some models that really work in a couple of states with more investment and then let other states emulate that once we've been able to figure out how to actually, you know, build up football properly in a particular state with baby leagues and in youth competitions and professional systems and so on. It could mean privatizing stadiums. So the government loses out a bit, but now privatizing some of those stadiums so we can actually refurbish them and monetize them. So every, it might mean not hosting mega events anymore for a little while, no more U17 World Cups or U20s. So we can take that money that we've allocated for these mega events and actually put them into various um, assets and programs that are going to help serve the next 40, 50 years of football in the country. So I could go on, but what I'm trying to say is that it's about putting our own agendas and even bank balances aside, unfortunately, for a bit and focusing more on those key strategic imperatives that we can all channelize our resources and energy to do. If you look at Japan, Japan has a 100-year plan. They, in 1992, they set up a 100-year plan, so by 2092, they would win the World Cup. Imagine, take people who probably were putting that plan together most likely wouldn't be alive by the time they actually got to see it, it, the fruits of their efforts. But because they believe in the long-term future of, you know, of, uh, of what they're, I mean, the long-term future of the sport, as long as they're putting in consistent efforts now over the next many decades, it's worthwhile. So they're thinking about their kids, their grandkids, and their great-grandkids more than thinking about what's happening in the next five years. And I feel like in India, we sometimes, because of the success of cricket and the IPL we want, and the, and the Premier League, we want that so fast. But the reality is it's a big country, and it takes time with these big countries to be able to get corral, corral everyone together to actually see the kind of results that we all hope to achieve. It might take a lot longer than many of our lifetimes, but it's okay. I mean, as long as it's for the best of the game in the country, why not? Yeah, uh, a lot to unpack there. And like, because <laughs> I think that it seems like such an uphill task logistically in a country like India. And like you said, everyone is kind of moving in different directions and, and different parts of the country are in different stages. So mm. to try and convince people to say, okay, now let's take a step back and let's look at it holistically and work towards something together from step one, it feels yes. like you'd get an insane amount of pushback. Well said. Yes, 100%. You would. <laughs> and and I, I think the unfortunate part of it is that the last two decades, we've seen investments come and go in Indian football. So there's been, there are, of course, people who are questioning where the money is going. There are people questioning what is the viability of it. And unfortunately, that's the reality. Um, it's true. It's psychology. People are going to be hesitant to believe in a, in a kind of nationally driven plan that they have to invest in if they don't believe that it's going to actually deliver what the objectives are. And 
I mean, that's the importance of having the right people who are leaders, who have patience, who have passion, who have accountability, who have integrity in all of these positions, whether they're running states, the federation, you know, whether they're running districts, whether they're running agencies or leagues. Once you have those individuals, a lot of these things become a lot easier. And I'm not saying they're not there fully, but and it's gotten better over the years for sure. But people make make these plans happen and not just money. Um, and I've seen it in other city, uh, countries, not just the U.S., but many other places. The professionalism and integrity of the people behind the development and management and governance of the sport are actually are, are one of the bigger reasons why you see the success that you're starting to see in those those places. One of the other interesting things you mentioned, because normally you'd think hosting a big tournament, and now we've hosted a couple of big youth tournaments in the last few years, would be a springboard. Like I would think that. For example, in the USA, um, after the 94 World Cup, that kind of set them on the trajectory as well. But you're suggesting that perhaps it may not be the best idea to host uh, tournaments like that in the short term. So mm. what's the kind of thinking behind that? Yeah. Is it mainly just allocation of resources? Yeah, well, so, uh, and, and, you know, one of the things I want to be very clear on is that, you know, I like chapter five of the book, um, Awakening the Blue Tigers is all about the, the U-17 World Cup in 2017 and all of the, the that story and the great things that the LOC were able to pull off, making it the most successful youth tournament FIFA has ever hosted in terms of attendance. Um, and it's, I was just at Salt Lake Stadium, I was mentioning, and I saw the results of the kind of refurbishment of that stadium many years ago for the for the final and other competitions. So I wouldn't say it's all, it's not good. And I actually believe that the U-17 World Cup, which is more of a development tournament, is a very good thing in the sense of it. it forces us to get our youth systems and our scouting and everything together so we put on the best possible product on the pitch. That being said, is when we're starting to look at U-20s or AFC Asian Cups or um, even senior FIFA World Cups, which is being thrown around recently, I, I feel... Personally, that if that if that, and I know this is a lot has to do with political arrangements and, and relationship, but if that same money could be allocated toward the development of the game versus the refurbishment of stadiums and the you know exposure for a handful of players and all the marketing rupees that need to be spent in and everything else, if then it might be not might be it would be better for the long term development of the game. However, of course, each of those mega events bring a lot of positives to it and we can't deny that and we it's a it's kind of as those benchmarks that we get excited about working towards so there's a lot of positives but i feel like those like i was at the 94 world cup in the u.s and i'll be there in 2026 the difference of what we're going to see in 94 and 2026 is going to be two different planets honestly because 94 there wasn't really a full football culture a lot of people going to the matches were just watching because they kind of wanted to see what it was or they're from a different country and the, the performance of our men's national team was good but was still could have been stronger now in 2026 the hope is that you have mls players playing in the u.s national team you have um you know fans who are fans of local clubs and now they're supporting the national team there you have stadiums that are just so ready to host something like this and we're just at a different and the national team could get into the quarterfinals or semifinals or who knows. So yeah. it's at a different level. And I feel like before you start investing so much time, energy and resources in such a large event, we need to really focus on what we're doing here at the most basics 
of levels before we get to that point. Because it just takes away a lot of our bandwidth into something yeah. else. And it distracts us from the real challenges that we need to focus on right now. So I'm imagining if you just had a clean slate and you were able to put a budget together and you want to allocate resources to certain things, a lot of what you would focus on, and, and I'm basing this on, on what I've been reading in your book, would be stuff like expanding coaching programs, uh, setting up acad- academies, setting up a more professional network for youth football in, in India. Like that's what you, you want to attract the best coaches by giving them the best setting possible. So India, we're, we're, we're pretty far from there. The other part of it, ultimately, it comes down to commercials. It comes down to financials. It's a, it's not a business, but it is a business. You To be able to run quality coaching programs, to get the right facilitators in, to get the right facilities, accommodation, to get the right people to do those who are willing to take out a week or a month of their life away from other places to go get that training, there has to be the right sort of incentives to do that. So there needs to be an incentive. There needs to be enough money flowing into the system to make sure that everyone who's involved in such a training, a coaching education program, is feeling like their time is being valued properly as well. And for that to happen, there does need to be a scaling back of the system and starting to look at how do you how do you build a financial model around coaching education that works? Like football in the U.S., like youth soccer, you know, even when you didn't have a professional league, there was a financial model around it that made it fun for a four-year-old or a 10-year-old and a coach and an administrator all be part of this, this, this sport because we were having fun. It was quality. It was, um, it was something that we all felt like it wasn't just haphazardly put together, but there was genuine effort to make it a professional experience. And you needed a bit of funds to be able to do that as well. Of course, when it comes to, like, again, going up in California, our coaches were making good money because of the financial model around it. So there was a, a decent amount of, uh, funds that were coming back to them. But I don't think everyone gets a coaching license. You don't just get it because you want to be the next national team coach or the next academy coach. You get that license sometimes just upskill yourself. So whatever situation you get op- the opportunity to be a part of, you're going to be a much more um, you know equipped person to take advantage of that and do the best job put forward. We need more opportunities for those coaches to get involved in the system and in India. Do you see that beginning of that with uh, ISL clubs, with I-League clubs? Are they doing enough, you think, in the communities? I know I've seen a few sort of outreach programs or sponsored academies, etc. I've, I've never fully understood how useful some of these academies are. Are they just for branding purposes? Is there any sort of use that's coming out of it? Is there any development of football players? How do you see that progressing as it is yeah. right now? So there's, there's two aspects of that question. One is the academy part. I think some clubs are definitely setting up proper academies to the best of their ability, residential or non-residential. And players are starting to come through there. So Hyderabad just built a really great facility. You know, FC Goa has built one and others are, are utilizing existing infrastructure. But there are some decent academies and ultimately an academy is a pure investment. Right now, you're not seeing huge transfer fees or, you know, players that are coming out and getting sold to other clubs or other countries. So anything you're putting into an academy is, is a pure investment. It's a, it's just, it's an expense at, at this point. And the fact that they're doing it is a good sign. The other part of your question is community engagement. I, I don't think it's that much right now. And I don't blame the clubs either. I, I was a CEO of an I league club a long time back in Pune 
And I know that we would have loved to do more in the community, engage, go to uh, NG, work with NGOs or go to slums or work with women's empowerment. But the reality is, is that if you're an ISL club spending, you know, upwards around 30 to 50 crore a year on players and logistics and stadium rentals and your academy, you just don't have the most bandwidth to then spend a lot of time having a foundation or a concerted effort to make a difference community. I'm not saying they aren't. It's just that I don't blame the ones that aren't yet because until they're financially stable, um, it's hard to expect so much time and energy to go into uh, community engagement, building coaching programs and just for volunteers and other things. It'll take time for that to happen. And even in MLS, our first 10 years, we did things, but I, we couldn't yeah. do that much. We were losing money as a league. We needed to just get our ship floating properly. And now that the league is, you see so much happening. And whether it's Black Lives Matters or LGBTQ community, the league is trying to address everything because they're in a much better financial situation to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, the football league in England has been around for over 100 years. And it's only yes. it's taken that much time to stabilize as a footballing pyramid before you're able to really engage in the community in a worthwhile manner. So, Perfectly so yeah. Good, yeah. So yeah, so we 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 are just in the sort of nascent stages of all of that. Um, another huge thing that we talk about in India is scouting. I don't even know how something like that works in a country of our size. Um, what are the logistical challenges in India? I mean, honestly, the logistical issue, the biggest one is that until we have enough youth leagues all over the country or enough programs that are giving those youth players the right amount of exposure anyway and the right amount of competition, nutrition, education, whatever it might be. It's hard for scouts to go out and really find these players anyway because in, imagine you just show up in rural Bihar. And yeah. it, I mean, how do you even know if how good that player is until that player is playing in a regular league? Like if we were scouting in Brazil or Argentina or let's say even U.S., you could even go to a part of Santa Ana, California in a local Mexican league and, and, and see that player playing at the age of five or six in a local place. But here we don't see that. So one is that that's the hard part, first off. is And then two is, is that now you've identified that 10-year-old phenom from Bihar. Fantastic. What do you do with that player? Do you bring them into one of the U12s or U13 teams that exist somewhere? Do you bring them into an NGO there's nothing really at the federation level at that age. So there's no there's no pipeline at that age. So what happens is that we only find players when they're playing like Subroto Cup or some, you know, something later. And at that time, they're already pretty developed almost. Like they're 13, 14, 15. It's hard to... then you And then, then you bring them into an academy, an AIFF Center of Excellence, or you find them in some sort of ISL team. But you've kind of missed a big opportunity to impact them when they're really developing as a as a as a human being as a you know as an adult. so that's i would say that's an issue too is scouting is not a full-time job for many people so it's like you're doing that three is that there could be relationships that kind of you're using to bring in players that you're favoring so but i would say the biggest issue out of everything is not having enough of a platform to scout from and two is a platform to take those people you've scouted into after you've scattered them as well. Yeah. Do you think the dual citizenship issue and the lack of that option affects us at all in terms of being able to call up players that could perhaps 
play for Team India but don't want to give up their actual citizenship? Or do you think that's just an excuse to not actually developing our real Indian talent? <laughs> I mean, I, I think yes and yes. I, I think the, the way you positioned that was perfectly accurate. So the dual citizenship thing, and, and just for those listening who don't know, is that, um, you know, even myself, I'm a U.S. citizen. So if I was in India, I'm an OCI card holder. So technically, if I was as good as you, Uday, at football, and I could uh, play in the national team, um, I would have to give up my my U.S. citizenship and become, you know, a, a naturalized Indian citizen and play. Then I could play for the national team here. But, you know, I even question whether I'd do that or not, because at that point, it just becomes easier for travel and other things to be a U.S. citizen. So a lot of a lot of amazing British Indians or even, you know, American Indians or Indian Americans are out there. And they probably could come here, play a little bit, and and be um, in, in rep, or even Australians come and represent India. And the re- in the government, it's not AIFF. The government of India doesn't allow for you to be an OCI, a dual citizenship. So you can't do that until you give up your passport. Now, I would say that um, yeah, we could get a, a bunch of these guys to come over if they could play while still holding onto their passport. Nothing like it. I think that'd be great from. A national team standpoint and a rising tide does lift all boats if we yeah. qualify for a world cup or win an afc asian cup yeah would more money come into the sport yes would people care about football more would newspapers write about it more yes so in that sense there's a lot of positives for the dual citizenship or an oci holder coming to india playing an isl for a while realizing hey this is cool and i'll just be an indian citizen or not and just coming over and being an indian citizen that being said, is that I think the second part of your question is true, is that see, we can't rely on for Indians who are coming from abroad. We, we, at the end of the day, we have enough money, resources, we have enough resources, we have enough talent in this country to be able to produce players of high yeah. caliber that can compete at the best in the world or the best in Asia with the systems and, and programs we build here. So if then they're the cherry on top, okay, let's get um, one of these guys uh, over a Danny Bath or something over. Well, he's my cherry on top. He's going to make us a strong team stronger. But if we're relying on them to be our whole cake, well, then what are we doing as a country? Yeah. Like, then, then the whole thing is not really making any sense. And then we're also distracted. We're looking at the Asian Cup victories and we're forgetting that we have shitty academies, you know, no youth system. And, yeah. you know, no scouting system in our league is still not, the business model is not working as well as we'd like it to. If I had to get you on our next podcast, which would mm-hmm. mark the the time that one of our teams would qualify for the World Cup, what <laughs> year would we be, what year would we be having that interview? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I got this question the other day, uh, like this book panel thing. And I was like, you know, the funny thing is, is that qualifying, who's going to win a country will qualify the World Cup is also so... Hard to explain. Like Italy, think about it. Italy is not mm. in this World Cup. Italy, who won the Euros Fending in 2021. Yeah, yeah they, and who's obviously have some incredible talent in their team. But to be honest, I mean, I would realistically, I mean, we all know, most people would know that the World Cup starting next round, uh, 2026, is 48 teams, teams yeah. from 32. Mm. I mean, Just very quickly, uh, it, yeah, is that? Is, do you think that's a good thing, or do you think that dilutes uh, the quality of football? I mean, I guess there are two arguments to it because yeah. it gives so many other teams and so many nations another opportunity to qualify. But then, 
is the competitive nature of the game being called into question a little bit? You know, it's it's a really interesting I mean, question. So I was I don't know if you've watched it just came out, but I'm a nut for um, sports documentaries. So I just watched that on Netflix. Captains, Captains is uh-huh. a, they're following the captains of uh, I think six national teams as they look to qualify for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. And I thought they would have captains of like Brazil, England, and everyone. They did have Brazil's Thiago, but they had the captain of Vanuatu, the captain of Lebanon. They had um, the captain of Gabon, and you're actually watching the captain of Jamaica as well. So you're actually watching these kind of countries that are not typically always qualified for a World Cup, and some who've never, like Vanuatu, what their life is like in that journey. And it was fascinating because, from a again, from a, a pure Football, high, you know, lover standpoint. Who doesn't want to see every World Cup being game being very competitive and very exciting? Yeah. And typically, that'll happen when two teams of similar caliber are playing or a close caliber. However, when you actually see the power of World what World Cup qualifying does for some of these countries, these smaller ones as well, and you know, in the fact that they really believe, like Vanuatu believes that they can win the spot in Oceania to get into the World Cup and what that does for their country, their people, their youth. I, I love it. So now as a guy who's part of the global game and living in India, working in football in the way that I have, living in the U.S., working in football, I will, I'm excited about 48 teams. And one, for the fact that I think it's really great for football to grow globally in the 200-plus countries it's in. Two, because I would love to have this be the way that India gets into the World Cup easier <laughs> yeah. than the way that it is now. Because if... I in my lifetime I'm able to see India in a men's or women's World Cup. I will be happy. But so to answer your question, I don't know honestly because all these things have a lot of these things have to happen. And we yeah. talked about to see this as happen. And I was just saying the other day to somebody that I don't want to get in because we're hosting it or it's a fluke mm. entry. That's fine. But I believe in sustainability. The '90 World Cup US made it. The '94 World Cup we made it. The '98 World Cup we made it. 2002 got into quarterfinals. 2008 made it. 2012 made it. Mm. Didn't unfortunately. 2000. Uh, sorry, 2010 made it. 2014 didn't, which sucked. But now 2018. But that consistency is so important as well. And yeah. you can only have that consistency if you have the right foundation and systems working to ensure that every cycle you make it. If we go to a World Cup and we lose 7-0, 6-0, and 10-0, it'll destroy the energy and excitement that we have, um, you know, all the like that going into it. It might yeah. for a couple people who have those kind of, you know, strength of steel, whatever it might be, to say that, no, we're going to do it. But the others who all backed it for that time, like the part sponsors and journalists, they're like, what is this? We're, we're, yeah. we, got in, we went there and got embarrassed. So I don't want that to happen. I want us to get there and actually put on a good show, which is going to take a lot of work from all of us. We'll accept your answer as in our lifetime. Is that good yeah. enough? I like that answer, a hundred percent. Let's let you yeah. and I uh, go out and, and definitely watch that together. And remember that in 2022, we said so we might be 80, we might be 40, we might be. Or, yeah. no, sorry, not 40. I'm already 40. We might be much older, but let's see. But sometime, you one day, you and I will go watch India play in a World Cup match, a senior World Cup match. Yeah, hopefully that'll be sometime in the nearer future. Uh, But yeah, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. That was such a great conversation. I think we covered a lot about what sort of Indian football needs to do. And uh, it feels like we're on a positive pathway. So I'm quite excited about seeing how this unfolds. Yeah, you know, I, I, 
one is I really enjoyed this conversation. Two is that I know that we could have 10,000 more of these and just keep talking because both of us yeah. are passionate. But I wanted to leave with a couple of positives real fast is that things that we should, as people who love the sport and listeners who probably love the sport would, would, would talk, which should, should remember. One is that, you know, there are there is deep passion in, in several states, you know, for this game. Of course, we already know the major ones, but that's really important. The second one is that, like I mentioned earlier, the growth of the urban fan, basically going to these events and I'm just... Uh, and I'm attending the Premier League 30 event there you know, and all these things that are happening. And it's like, there's so much passion for football in there in, in Delhi, Mumbai, Bangalore, Chennai, and so on. So I'm really, really excited about that. The other one is that cities like Bangalore and Hyderabad and, and Bhubaneswar, like what's happening there in terms of football culture has been pretty incredible and something that other states like in Ahmedabad or like in Nagpur or whoever it might be should learn from. And maybe we can all see that that growth happen finally i would say that uh, the number of turf pitches that are coming up i mean we have i'm sitting in an off in a campus right now and we have a turf pitch right on our roof and people are playing all day long and yeah. it's just this is happening all over the country and 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 i guess the final final thing i was saying which i touched on earlier is these individuals who are doing incredible work out there no matter what ranking we have no matter how much we lose to the u.s and the u17 world cup by these people wake up every day and they keep working for the betterment of the game. What you and your team are doing with this podcast and the work that all of us are doing in our own little silos, it gives me hope that we are on the right path. Like we're, none of us are stopping. We're going to do this thing, but um, we, we got to do it together. I think that's the most, that's if I was going to have one takeaway from this whole conversation is that we, we have to put our own egos and our you know, financial planning aside for a bit. And, and say that, what are we going to do together to make this whole sport thrive in this country and for the betterment of our grandkids, honestly. So that's, that's yeah. where we should be at. And, and I think that's, that's a great way to put it because you can have all the money in the world, all the infrastructure in the world, everything. You don't have the culture, you don't have the passion, you don't have the love for the game, then you won't get anywhere. And personally, like you said, from what I've seen going into stadiums, going into uh, fan supporter group meetings, to going into playing football and turfs, it's there. Yes. It's there, it's alive, and it's exciting. Yes, exactly. Cool. Thanks so much. Cheers, Neil. Thank you so much. Catch See, up thank soon. Thank you. Take care. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening, and please do like and share. The Business of Sports is now streaming on Amazon Music and GeoSavern apart from Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. And of course, ET's very own audio platform, ET Play. Also, shout out to Karan Ravi Shankar, the constant voice in my ear and tap on my shoulder. And of course, thanks to our sound engineer, Shumagni Biswas, for putting together the episode. And last but not least, our producers, Vinay Joshi, and the team at The Economic Times. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with a new episode at the same time every week. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits mentioned in the description. So, sixteen twenty-five. This is the business of sports. Business of sports from the Economic Times.